The going gets tough, you really realize in a company, who are the people you can really trust. You learn a lot of things more through adversity, frankly, because when things are going really well, I mean, everybody believes it's because of their efforts. And perhaps when things are not going well, you think it's because of somebody else's, you know, inadequacies. In my role, there's no, there's nobody else that you can look at and say it was their issue. Welcome to View from the Top, the podcast. That was Shantanu Narayan, chairman and CEO of Adobe. Shantanu visited the Stanford Graduate School of Business as part of View from the Top, a speaker series where students, like me, sit down to interview business leaders from around the world. I'm Sankalp Banerjee, an MBA student of the class of 2023. I had the great pleasure of speaking with Shantanu about his personal evolution as a leader, how he seeks opportunities in setbacks, and his sources of creative inspiration. He also shared his perspective on the future of digital experiences, including the impact of generative AI. You're listening to View from the Top, the podcast. Shantanu, it's such a pleasure to have you here with us. Welcome to Stanford. Thanks for having me. It's good to see so many folks. Uh... Absolutely. Uh, since we all know Adobe to be a leader in digital experiences and digital imaging, we thought it was appropriate to start with a few images from your own digital footprint. As long as Photoshop was used in the creation <laughs> or editing of that, I'm okay. So at first, I found pictures that one might expect, ones of you meeting with other tech leaders like Satya Nadella, appearances on CNBC, meeting with world leaders like Prime Minister Modi and Tony Blair. But then I looked further. Okay. <laughs> I also found you on stage with Fergie from the Black Eyed Peas, <laughs> hosting Billie Eilish at Adobe, launching a collaboration with Lady Gaga. My question to you, Shantanu, is as you were building a career in tech, was there any part of you that secretly wanted to become a pop star? <laughs> Actually, that's one that I can honestly say the answer is no. Uh, <laughs> and true story, which uh, this is uh, Chatham House Rules, right? And I know it's going to be on YouTube, but you will never repeat this, hopefully. Which, when uh, Ann Lunas, who was our CMO, mm -hmm. uh, came and told me that uh, Billie Eilish was going to be at Max, and we were going to be having Billie Eilish uh, you know, as part of Max, I said, oh, really? I've never heard him. And so that, that's how ignorant I am of, you know, uh, some of these uh, new age musicians. But no, I mean, I, I had no desire, no bathroom singing. Um, <laughs> the only thing I wanted to be was a professional golfer or an athlete. So oh. that was very much part of it. But that didn't transpire either, Sankal. <laughs> well, in case you ever change your mind, we took the liberty of using your very own Adobe Photoshop to visualize what that might look like. Okay. And uh, here it is. If you but, could give me a little more hair, maybe that would be, you know, <laughs> more in line with the rock stars of the old. Right. Well, we can come back to the career that you did choose, and you've had a fascinating journey. I'd love to start at the very beginning. You grew up in Hyderabad in southern India. Your mother taught American literature. Your dad ran a business in industrial plastics. Tell us about the Narayan household and what were you interested in? Oh, it was a very happy childhood. Um, as you said, uh, you know, my father actually went to uh, school in Urbana. Ah, okay. um, he studied electrical engineering here and then he went back uh, to get married to my mother. And, um, you know, education was always something that was considered critical uh, in the Narayan household. I have one elder brother, he's also in the Bay Area, works for uh, a chip company here. And, uh, you know, I went to this incredible school uh, that we were talking about a little bit backstage where uh, you could pursue anything from academics to extracurricular activities. And so, you know, I was the captain of the debate team. I participated in plays. I edited the school magazine. Uh, you know, anything but academics uh, was sort of what I, what I used to focus on. And it was a great city to grow up. Um, and, you know, uh, my... Mother was, uh, as you said, a professor of American literature. So I wanted to be a journalist actually growing up, and I've said that a lot. But in India, you know, the general wisdom or conventional wisdom at that point was that 
you either grow up to be an engineer or you grow up to be a medical doctor. And those were considered the two uh, professions that most people uh, followed. And I hated the sight of blood. So I guess engineering was the lesser of the two evils. <laughs> so here I am. You were interested in journalism. You mentioned engineering. At one point, you were also on India's national sailing team. Uh, as, you, you know, as you were exploring these multiple passions, did that have any impact on your future aspirations? Well, again, uh, you know, the sailing was a fun thing. I mean, we, I grew up, as you said, in a city called Hyderabad, and Hyderabad has this lake. Uh, Hyderabad's actually now become one of the larger software uh, centers uh, in India. I think Google, Microsoft, Facebook all have big centers, but it was this really small town, and, um, you know, sailing was, again, one way to, you know, not hit the books. I mean, a anything to not hit the books uh, was sort of the theme growing up, honestly, and... Uh, but I think just doing these different things, uh, you know, in many ways, it teaches you what you like to do. Mm -hmm. And I think what's an equally important lesson, it teaches you what not, what you don't like doing. And I always tell that, you know, uh, for people, because I think career choices or, or choices of what you do. So, uh, you know, I think, uh, and that's the beautiful thing about undergrad education in the U.S., in India, when you do undergrad education, I think four years of engineering, I had one elective that I was allowed to take, I think, in my fourth year, second semester, or something like that. But, you know, just getting exposed to all these things, uh, I think, just teaches you to adapt and maybe, uh, you know, think about different areas. So it was fabulous. Yeah. You eventually did hit the books. You did your master's <laughs> here um, in the U.S. and then came to Silicon Valley. You started off at an early stage startup and then a much larger company in Apple. Uh, what lessons stuck with you across these two very different experiences? Well, I think the entrepreneurial genes have always been a big part of who I am. And so, as you pointed out, my first company was a company called MeasureX Automation Systems. And uh, I, this was in the uh, mid-80s. And what they were trying to do was, uh, you know, do for the process control industry uh, and the discrete control industry how software could be used in that particular case. And... Uh, you know, it was a fabulous experience um, in terms of uh, being at a startup. You get all this opportunity to do a lot of things. And then, as you pointed out, you went to Apple, which was, you know, significantly different in Silicon Graphics, uh, you know, where they were much larger companies. And I think in the much larger companies, I learned a lot about how you plan for the upside and maybe react to the downside. And in a small company, you just, I think, realize this aspect of never taking no for an answer. And I think that's something that hopefully is still the hallmark of how I like to manage, which is in small companies, you have to overcome every single adversity that exists. And, you know, that continues to be one of the things that I'm very passionate about. How do you create in a company like Adobe mm -hmm. this notion that, you know, anything's possible? Uh, because we artificially, uh, you know, limit our own aspirations. And so, you know, it was actually both of those were great experiences uh, financially, MeasureX automation systems was not as successful. But I think also what makes the Valley such an amazing place is nobody cares where you went as long as you get good experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the other learning, which is, you know, early in your career, get a whole bunch of diverse experiences, you know. And uh, I think that's what makes the Valley such a special place. Nobody cares whether you were, quote, unquote, successful in that company. It's mm -hmm. all a question of how do you get more tools? And after Apple and Silicon Graphics, you tapped into your entrepreneurial genes. You started your own company, Pictra, yep. in the photo sharing space. Um, and the company also you know, faced some challenges over the next couple of years. As you look back on that experience, how do you think about responding to setbacks? Well, it was the best thing that happened to me. I mean, uh, Pictra was this company. In the early 90s, you know, the movement from analog photography to digital photography was just happening. And so we said to ourselves, hey, maybe people will want to share images and, and share videos. Uh, new concept, correct? Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, we were way ahead of uh, our time, so to speak, because the business model wasn't there. And uh, we sold the technology to Fuji. You know, Fuji and Kodak uh, were the two large companies that we partnered with. Um, uh, and, but I, I really don't look at it as a setback, you know. Mm. I mean, I look at it as it was incredible experience. We raised a lot of money. Uh, at, at one point, my co-founder, who is the CEO, I told him, listen, I don't think there's a business model and we should return the money. And 
he wanted to keep going. And so at that point, Adobe was actually potentially looking to buy Pictra. Mm. Uh, they decided against it. And I'm like, great, you know, Photoshop has this incredible brand. Let me go work at a much larger company. And so it was actually for me an on-ramp into, you know, a much larger company. Now, truth be told, I went to Adobe thinking, okay, I'll be there for 18 months and then I'll go off and start my other company again. Mm -hmm. And 25 years later, nobody's given me a job, so I'm still at <laughs> Adobe. Fair enough. And at, at Adobe, uh, you know, you led different divisions from product and engineering. As you were getting more and more responsibility, <clears throat> was there a moment when you knew you wanted to be CEO? The answer is no. I, you know, I mean, this is a lot of people ask this question about, you know, how structured were you in terms of, you know, uh, ambition. And I, first, as you point out, I joined Adobe in uh, January 98. Mm -hmm. In August 98, the company hit a wall. And, um, you know, Japan at that point, we had some serious issues in Japan. So the revenue dropped precipitously. And as a result, they had to lay off 25% of the, you know, company. Uh, this was in August, I think, August of 98. And, um, you know, John Warnock, the co-founder, and Chuck Geschke were running the company. And on, the, on one day, they actually let the CFO, the head of products, and the head of marketing go because they felt like the company was not as functionally, uh, you know, they weren't executing as much as they did, which is a massive move. I mean, think about it, right? It's, it's taking. And so they asked uh, my predecessor, Bruce Chisholm, uh, to run a lot of the products. He wanted to reorganize. I'd just come in. I was, I was a general manager at that point, and uh, Bruce wanted to uh, make it completely functional, which was the right thing because we were trying to break down all the fiefdoms and, mm -hmm. and get people to do stuff. Um, and so he asked me whether I'd be uh, one of the engineering leaders because I had an engineering background. Uh, first, I thought I'd be, you know, I was the new kid uh, in the block, so I'd probably get you know, let go off. Luckily, that didn't happen. And when he asked me to run engineering for this one group, um, InDesign was a product at that point. Quark was the market leader in desktop publishing. And he said, this is a really important initiative. Can you take that on? And, uh, you know, I, I said yes, because I think, you know, way too many times people think about, is that good for my career? And for me, that was an important initiative that the company wanted to do. And I said, you know, if I do that well, things will hopefully work out. Mm -hmm. And so I learned that very early on, which is, you know, people like to do what they think they're good at, perhaps not as much of where they, either the impact is required for the company or what a priority is. And I learned that very, very early on. And so, you know, I've said, great, I'll take initiative. And then, you know, that was luckily a successful project. And from there we did it. So, uh, we did other projects, mm -hmm. but... Uh, and then six months later, actually, Bruce told me, do you want to run? I, I still remember this. This was just before December of that year. And he had five engineering pe uh, people and he had five marketing folks reporting to him. And as I said, he had reorganized it. And he was clearly more on the sales and marketing side. Mm -hmm. So in December, he came to me and he said, I can manage five engineering people. And I, I thought he was, in effect, letting me down and telling me that, I'm going to consolidate all engineering under one of the other four leaders because the other four leaders were there probably a combined 75 years. And I said, okay. And he said, uh, would you like to run all engineering for Adobe? And I said, let me think about it. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, you know, sort of, so things work out. And you, you just sort of take the initiative. But I always wanted, I am always fascinated by the business of technology. And so I said, I'll do that, but over time, I'd like to run more product management and uh, conceive of products and create products. And he said, sure. And so, you know, I think taking the initiative always helped me get more responsibility. And yes, at some point, it became clear that, you know, hopefully I was being considered or groomed uh, for CEO. But there are also, you know, things that come along the way. We bought Macromedia, then it wasn't clear because perhaps, you know, the Macromedia CEO at that point also wanted to do it. But you sort of, you know, I've always gone with the flow. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even when I did my MBA, I'm sorry, I went to the other school. Uh, but <laughs> when I did my MBA, most people told me that, hey, now that you've got an MBA, you've got to stop doing engineering and you've got to become product management, you know, because product management and product marketing is the track to becoming a CEO. And I'm like, screw this. I like engineering and I'm going to keep engineering. So I, it's, it's worked out for me mm -hmm. in terms of doing what I what I want to do and what I have passion for. 
That's fascinating. And as a result of your initiative, uh, you were able to have disproportionate impact much before you were actually named CEO. Uh, that also draws a connection to something else you've talked about frequently, which is influence leadership. Give us a sense of what that means and why is it important to you? Well, again, you know, the, the first role that I had at Adobe was what's called the engineering technology group. And, you know, we had divisions and divisions ran different parts of the business. And we had this fundamental belief at Adobe that if you have a great technology platform that underlies all of your products, you know, if color works the same and the user experience is the same and printing is the same, then we can deliver more value to our customers by saying, if you learn how to use one product, you can learn all these other products. Uh, but then to your point, it could be perceived as you had zero direct responsibility for a product. And you know, most people like PNL, right? And I always tell people at Adobe, there's one PNL, you know, get over it. And I run that PNL, uh, <laughs> or, or the CFO runs the PNL. But uh, you know, that was for me the fact that I could influence as many products and I could be a client of as many products actually gave me this bird's eye view for how every product in the company worked. And you know, I think people obsess too much about who's in my direct line of responsibility and what do I manage. And I'm like, if you liberate yourself and if you feel like, okay, through influence, I'm impacting Photoshop and Acrobat and all these other products, it's actually a very liberating feeling. Hmm. And so I think for me, the influence leadership is, if you can convince somebody who doesn't work for you uh, that you know, they're part of your extended team, and conversely, if you can get gratification as a leader from what others do, whether or not they work for you, that's actually one of the most empowering things. Mm. You know, people like to talk about, this is what I did, and if that team becomes larger and larger, then you know, it's more happiness. And so I think that, Influence leadership, and I, and I encourage that a lot among my team right now. And I don't like people saying, this is my, you know, if, when I interview somebody for a new job and people typically come in and I say, what do you think the role is about? You know, it's always an open-ended question. And some people will say, well, I think I'm responsible for this and I have 80 people and this is my PNL, and I tune them out. And if they come in and say, you know, my, I think my job is to create new products or serve this customer segment or innovate in this area, I'm like, okay, tell me more. Hmm. So I, I think influence leadership for me is, it's worked out. And so I, I, think it's, I think it's liberating and I think it's empowering. Speaking of working out, in your first uh, year as CEO, Adobe had record revenues, extremely strong customer growth and customer retention, and then you run into the recession in 08. Give us a peek into your mind at that moment. How do you navigate this roller coaster? Well, in retrospect, it's great. I mean, in retrospect, it's great. At that time, it was terrible because, <laughs> you know, I, as you said, 2007, I take over. Luckily, I'd grown from within the ranks. And so I think the business, I had a really good sense of the business. I had a good sense of the products. Um, but when you get record revenues your first year, you're like, oh, my God, this is so easy. Even I can do it, you know? And... And then when the recession hit, because uh, at that point, Adobe was a discretionary purchase, mm -hmm. right? I mean, if you bought a previous version of the product, uh, you could choose whether or not to buy a new version of the product. And so there were things about our business model that were fundamentally, you know, now in retrospect, it seems so archaic, but opposed to, you know, the ability to innovate. And so, but again, the glass half full of that was, if that recession hadn't happened, we wouldn't have said we need a fundamental change in our business model. We wouldn't have been the first company to you know, really transition which, uh, from the desktop to the cloud. So at that time, it was hard. But I'll tell you so many silver linings from that. And you know, I think in, in my role, you have to be an optimist. The first silver lining is when the going gets tough, you really realize in a company, who are the people you can really trust? Who are the people who are there with you? They're not there just because things are... And you know, that management team, uh, we were together for 10 years. Hmm. And so I, I think you, you learn a lot of things more through adversity, frankly, because when things are going really well, I mean, everybody believes it's because of their efforts. And perhaps when things are not going well, you think it's because of somebody else's you know, inadequacies. And you know, in my role, there's no, 
there's nobody else that you can look at and say it was their issue. And mm -hmm. so, you know, you look in the mirror and you say, okay, we can either be paralyzed by what's happening in the macroeconomic environment, or we can look at it and say, what are the fundamental changes that we need to make? I'll, I'll give you one. Uh, you know, a lot of tech companies are now laying off people. Mm -hmm. And I was so impacted by the fact that at that point, um, you know, we had to let people go. It was a macroeconomic situation. We had discretionary purchase. The revenue dropped 25%. You know, our revenue dropped 25%. And, you know, in a software company, most of your costs are your, you know, fixed uh, people costs. And I resolved to myself, you know, which is like, if I'm not prioritizing things, or if I'm not making the changes that are required, so when the pandemic first came, we're like, let's prioritize the heck out of our stuff. And shame on us if we find ourselves where we are over-invested in areas. So again, a long-winded answer to say, you know, you learn things. And maybe this is the Asian part of my culture and growing up. You take the long-view things. Mm -hmm. I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen if things go badly in a company? You get fired. <laughs> I love that optimism. Uh, <laughs> that I will get fired or <laughs> <laughs> that everything will be fine <laughs> that everything will be fine exactly uh, you spoke earlier about an entrepreneurial gene uh, that's always been within, within you regardless of the size of company that you are working uh, for or, or leading at Adobe with a you know 200 plus billion market cap how do you drive innovation without running into bureaucracy it's hard. I, I, I don't think we've completely solved it. I, I don't think we've completely solved it, but a couple of lessons come to mind. I mean, one is, you know, when you look at Sand Hill Road, you know, the world's wealth, so much has been created by Sand Hill Road, and there's so much to learn from Sand Hill Road. And I, I think the first lesson is you talk to any uh, great investors and you can learn so much from them, they invest in people. So I, I think the first thing you do is when you're trying to innovate and you're trying to create a new project, you sort of look at it and say, do I trust implicitly the person who's heading up that project? Because antibodies do come out from every part of the company uh, because all the power in an organization tends to be in the products or in the groups that are making money today, mm -hmm. right? And so, I mean, the first thing you have to say is, first, all software, there's an S-curve. Businesses have a natural you know, life cycle, and if you don't invest, you know, some people call it phase one, phase two, horizon one, whatever you want to call it, but you have to have a portfolio of products. So that's, I think, something that we fundamentally believe in. For the earlier stage products, you need to provide sponsorship. So that's a big part of what I do, which is going back to that people. Mm -hmm. Is it somebody that I trust? Because even by assigning somebody that you trust, you're sending a message to the organization that that's important. Mm -hmm. um, different cultures, um, you can say, let a thousand flowers bloom and let the best idea win. Or you could say, no, I want a few top down. I believe in the few top down. So I said, these are three or four areas that we're invested in. So let's innovate in those areas. And so at least we have a philosophy and we have a point of view uh, on what we want to do. You take the Sandhill Road approach a little bit about saying, let's give them a little money. You know, uh, most companies, I think one of the pitfalls could be we have annual product, annual planning cycles. Mm -hmm. So you tend to, you know, incubate these products only at annual uh, cycles. And, you know, what Sandal does is if there's anybody who ever comes up with a good idea, they'll find money, right? I mean, that old adage of in a, car, in a large company, you have to get, if there are 10 people who are decision makers, you have to get all of them to say yes and none of them to say no. Whereas on Sandhill, you can get one person to say yes and who cares if the other nine say no? So, you know, we're, we're trying to replicate some of those things. And I want somebody on my staff to be passionate about each of the new incubation projects. And if somebody is passionate about it, then they'll drive it. And if there isn't, then, you know, I, it's okay. And the other, I think, realization that you come up with after a while is it's okay if, you know, a company like Adobe you don't have to create everything within the company. Mm -hmm. You can buy products, you can you know, acquire. Early on in my career, I would say, when we acquired something that people looked at and said, hey, why didn't Adobe created it? You felt bad. And now you're like, it's okay. You know, I mean, you have the capital, you have the brand, go acquire it, because great ideas come from everywhere. And so I think those are a couple of ways in which we incubate, and then maybe when we buy a company, we leave it uh, isolated for a little while, because 
you know, way too often, I think companies do the, let's acquire something, okay, now we've got it. But you bought that company because you didn't have it, right? And so I think how you manage the company and that leadership is, you know, those are a few of the lessons I've learned. But we're always trying, it's hard. That's so interesting to hear the, the whole suite of approaches that you would, you would take to drive that innovation. So over the 15 years that you've been CEO, Adobe revenues have increased 7x. You've navigated recessions, geopolitical turmoil. Are you saying change. I'm old in the tooth or something here? I mean, uh, very, you're experienced. You're very experienced. <laughs> as you look back over your, your tenure, how have you personally changed as a leader? You know, I've changed a lot. I've changed a lot. Um, I think when you grow from within the company, I, I think the first, and I've, I've talked about this a fair amount, so, but when you grow up first, you know, I was an engineer by background, I sort of knew everything, and um, since my previous role was the chief operating officer, in many ways my role was, you know, keeping everything humming. And when we move to the cloud and the subscription model, you sort of realize that the job of a CEO, uh, you know, it's both doing the flag planting, as we call it, and the road building. Hmm. And I was, I think, a better road builder in those days than maybe a flag planter. Because I, I sort of had this engineering mind, I was trying to connect the dots. And you realize when you're talking to a group like this and you want to make a big change, there are half the people in the room who probably tune you out if you talk about just the road building because they want to know what hill you want them to go you know, conquer. And conversely, they're probably half the room tunes you out when you all talk about, hey, I want to go, you know, win a World Series, and they're like, well, what about next game? And, you know, what are we going to do? And how do I uh, participate in that? And so I think that's been one of the big changes that I've, I've made, which is the people amaze you, amaze you with their ingenuity. And I think part of our roles uh, is creating unreasonable expectations, and I try and do that all the time, which is if you can create what you consider unreasonable in expectations, people amaze you with their ingenuity. Mm. So I would say that's one big area where, you know, I've sort of changed uh, what I do. I think the second big area I, I would say, and this is, I, it, everybody tells you this, but your focus on people and the time that you spend on your leaders, uh, that's, you know, you spend more and more and more of your time on leaders and hopefully coaching, that's a big change. Mm -hmm from where you would do execution reviews to where you spend time with people and hopefully uh, both get inspired by them and inspire them. You know? So I, I think that's a big change that's happened. Uh, I think the third thing is things where I look at it and I say, I don't like it. And if I don't like it, how do I find somebody else who's more passionate about that area to do it? You know, I, John Warnock again. I, I've learned so much from the two founders of the company and John said something to me the day I took over as CEO, John said to me, if you don't like your job, Shantanu, you're one person to blame. I said, is that you, John? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and so when you take that on, we, I, I have this incredible, incredible opportunity to do what I want, right? And so I focus on the things that I like. And you know, previously I would be like, okay, I gotta do a little IR and I've gotta do a little PR and I've gotta do product and I gotta spend, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to focus on where I want to have impact. And I'm feeling far more comfortable about that, mm -hmm. which is where do I want to spend my time because it's my most precious commodity. Uh, and last but not least, I'm way more comfortable uh, than I was 15 years in knowing that I'm going to be wrong a lot of the time. Hopefully I'm not doing the same thing wrong over and over again. But, you know, it's very rare in these senior roles, not just CEO, that people come to you. I mean, I... I can't remember the last time my team came to me and said, all 10 of us are unbelievably aligned on this. We all want to do this. What do you think? <laughs> you know, they typically come and it's like, well, I, five want to do this, four want to do this, one's undecided. Make a call, Shantanu, right? And so I think that dealing with ambiguity and uncertainty and being just completely comfortable that, yeah, I'm going to fail a whole bunch of times and I'm going to get it wrong, but I can change it. I think that's the part that I'm very much more comfortable with that. And so I, part of the journey. That's fascinating to hear. You mentioned planting the flag and setting the vision. 
you, in your seat, you have a very unique vantage point into the future of technology, the creator economy, digital experiences. What gets you excited about the future? Oh, there's so much. I mean, you know, I, I think the most recent thing I would talk about is, and clearly it's the buzz, is what we've done. If you haven't heard, we introduced this uh, product called Firefly uh, recently. It's our generative AI. And, you know, I mean, I, at the end of the day, if you think about Adobe's purpose and what we are focused on, uh, we believe in this notion of creativity for all. Everybody has a story to tell. And if we can help them tell that story, you know, on any medium using any device, then we're serving, you know, a, a larger and larger set of community. And right now, I think thinking about the role of how we can use artificial intelligence to make our products more accessible, more productive, more fun, I think we're just at the very, very early stages of it. Uh, I think we took a very unique approach because we said, we're only going to license our models based on the data that we have. We're only going to train it based on uh, the data that we have license for. And I think that's one in which, uh, you know, if we can get billions of people to use our software, I'm really excited about that. I love the word impact. Mm -hmm. And if we can have impact through that, that's one exciting thing. And, you know, there's the other part of Adobe's business, which is all about any digital experience that you have engaging with any enterprise Hopefully, there's a piece of Adobe software that's used in the creation of that, whether it's the website, the email campaign, uh, you know, the analytics associated with it. And the reality is, when everybody talks about digital transformation, they're talking about you know, engaging with a customer digitally and getting that personalized experience that they expect. And so from the Adobe perspective, those are the two things that I'm most, most fascinated about. On the personal side, I'm on the board of Pfizer. And I think if I was starting my career right now, I think the confluence of technology and medicine and the ability to you know, really get these incredible new uh, therapies and, and to market, I, that's one that I'm particularly fascinated by. I've got one final question before we turn it over to the audience. Okay. Uh, Shantanu, you've led large companies, you've led startups, you've served on boards, you've invested in sports teams, you've basically done it all. As you look out into this room of many soon-to-be graduates, what's one piece of advice you'd like to leave us with? Well, I was, you know, I was saying this earlier, which is the world's your oyster. I mean, I, it's just, I mean, I, think, of, think of where you are. You're at Stanford University in Silicon Valley. And if you have a great idea, uh, you know, it's just, I, the world's really your oyster and trust your instinct. I mean, I, again, I, the thing, when people ask me for advice, I say I'm not very good at giving advice. And be careful about asking for advice because you're getting what you're paying for it. Uh, <laughs> uh, but the thing that I would say is, you know, what we can be are sounding boards. Mm -hmm. And when people say, do you think I should do this or not? It's like, be true to yourself. I mean, I've always said people do their best work when they resonate with the mission of the company. So we always talk about changing the world through digital experiences and when you resonate with the values of the company. Hmm. I, you know, and that's not value judgment on different values, different companies have different values. But if you can do that, if you can wake up every morning and you know, feel like, wow, I resonate with the vision and the values speak to me as a human, you'll do your best work. Otherwise, it's a job and it becomes a nine to five. So I, you know, do something that gets you excited about waking up in the morning. With that advice and with you as a sounding board, we'll turn it over to the audience. Great. Uh, please raise your hands. Mics will be passed to you and you can ask your question. Hi, I'm Sher. I'm a second year MBA. Thank you for being here. Um, as CEO, you have the unique perspective of establishing partnerships with across the tech industry. And one such extreme that happened many years ago was the controversial public disagreement with Apple over the use of Adobe Flash. But on the other hand, you have also led very successful open data collaboration with companies such as Microsoft and SAP. So my question here is, what do you think causes some partnerships in tech to succeed and others to struggle? And how might us as future leaders here go about in thinking, building that right tool set and establishing the right power of partnerships in what seems to be a very highly competitive tech environment? 
it's, it's a good question. A couple of thoughts come to mind. I mean, the first is, first go back to this, you know, uh, assertion that I have where some will work and some won't work. So be comfortable with it. You know, it's, it's worse not trying partnerships than it is trying partnerships. And Apple's a very good partner. So for the record, while we may have had in the past, uh, you know, uh, sort of... Uh, questions about Flash and whether or not it should be supported. I mean, the Mac OS and iOS are, are where we deliver, you know, most of our flagship products. And so the first thing I would say is, you know, you've got to try them because the ecosystem and the ability to step on the shoulders of, you know, or, or of or other giants, it's a good thing. The advice that I would give is think about, you know, is the business model fundamentally where they can make money and you can make money over time and you're serving customers? Because those are the partnerships that tend to, you know, uh, stand the test of time. I mean, press releases are cheap, right? I mean, with any events, everybody is trying to do a press release about how the two companies are going to get together and transform the world. But at the end of the day, if there's a good economic incentive, right, whether joint customers or customers or both of you make money. I'll give you an example. Uh, you pointed out Microsoft. You know, we were one of the first companies that sort of partnered with them on Azure uh, before Azure became this incredible, uh, you know, uh, giant that it has become. And we were like, hey, we need, uh, you know, multiple cloud providers. We were on AWS as well, Amazon, so we needed Microsoft. And they said they would get their entire field organization to, you know, co-sell ours. So we were validating it. And so there was a, a good economic argument. We were helping them, you know, with making sure that Azure met our needs. And so when there's a good business objective, it's the same with Google or Apple for us on uh, their devices. When Apple comes out with a brand new Mac OS, if we can take advantage of those incredible features that they have, you know, then we're serving our customers well who are on Mac and they make money and we make money. So I think really putting yourself in the shoes way too many times, you know, I, the mistakes we made is when we think, wow, this is so good for us, but we don't take the trouble to understand is it equally good for the other partner. And if that's not the case, then it's going to, you know, die on the vine because the other company is going to start off with good intentions, but it's not going to go anywhere. So I think I would say take that time to understand the economic incentives because all of us at the end of the day, uh, we have less time than we think and you know we're going to do the things that are going to yield the best results. So that's what I would do. Namaste Shantanukaru, I'm Bhagya. I work in strategic partnerships and I had a question which you just answered. So I'm See, that's my AI at work. <laughs> I'm kidding. So my question was really next on AI. Adobe has been a great company who led the world in enterprise transforming to the cloud. So now we are on the next phase of disruption, generative AI, and it impacts greatly on Adobe products. So what's your vision to transform, disrupt the next phase of art making and creating art for the companies and for people? Well, I, I first have this fundamental belief, at least in my professional uh, you know, uh, lifetime, generative AI in the creative and in the art space is going to augment human ingenuity and not replace it. Um, you know, I, Jensen uh, is a good friend. I, I had breakfast with him uh, recently. And, you know, it's one of those great, uh, you know, pleasures that I have, privileges that you can spend hours with somebody that you respect and, you know, talk about where you see think, uh, tech going. And, you know, we were talking both about these models, whether it's autonomous cars or generative AI, that, you know, at the end of the day, the companies that are going to win are those who recognize that there's a complete workflow associated with it and understanding. Because this notion that I'm going to come up with an idea and just describe it completely and get the final output, that's going to be a minuscule uh, percentage of you know, what people do. And so if we can think about, okay, you're going to augment human ingenuity, how do you make it? And the notion of co-pilot that everybody talks about, I, I believe that as well, which is we have the footprint with all of our applications. How can we help people? Uh, with that. And so we've, we've sort of approached generative AI as, again, if you have this vision of creativity for all, if you believe there are billions of people, 
the biggest thing that most people fear is the fear of a blank page. You have this idea, you want to create something, you know, uh, I was recent, I recently became a grandfather. And so when I became a grandfather, I was like, okay, I got to do this announcing my grandson. And I'm like, oh my God, I, I you know, and, and people have higher expectations of me. If I'm working at Adobe, you know, that <laughs> piece of content has to be great. But so you use it as an on-ramp to start doing it. So we're really looking at it first from how can, how can we design this to be commercially safe? I think that's a big issue. Uh, and then how can I also use that as a business model, which is if we've designed it using Adobe software, if I go into a company like Disney, how can Disney create a model that's only specific to Disney where it's their content and the Adobe license content, but only available to Disney? So that's a business opportunity. For the consumer, it's a business opportunity because it enables them to be more productive and creative. For the person who wants to create art, maybe they now are able to generate more art and make that a business, right? I mean, Adobe is also in the Adobe stock business. So I think the advantages are so much. Uh, and then last, the big area that we're focused on is what we're calling this content authenticity, which is, uh, it's an initiative. We now have 900 companies. It's all about the provenance of content and how do you understand when somebody creates that content, how can you actually monetize it effectively? So, you know, I think with all technologies, um, one of the things we talk about at uh, Adobe's purpose, we have three things. We talk about Adobe for all, creativity for all, and technology to transform. And you realize that technology has this incredible power, but there are potential uses of that technology that are potentially harmful. And that's a responsibility that a company like Adobe has to just take and say, let's understand that. We can't have our head in the sand and say, you know, it's not going to happen and ignore it because then somebody else is going to, you know, uh, exper experiment with it. So I'm a big believer that generative AI will actually bring more people into creative. It'll require more differentiation at the end of the day. Uh, but in a way, how is that different from, we have this, uh, you know, uh, online community called Behance. Think of it as LinkedIn for creative professionals. Tens of millions of people, they all produce stuff. People get inspired by that. And so I think generative AI also has the ability to be inspired. Certainly, there is going to be disruption. I, I'm not uh, you know, in denial of that. But if you come up with these assertions, that's again, you know, one of the ways we, we run the company is let's have some core assertions. And you know, even for a startup idea, I want the core assertions. If somebody says, hey, I need an hour to explain my idea, I'm not interested. And so I think if you have these core assertions clear, but I, I'm, a, I'm very excited, and I think we're in the early stages uh, of you know, what, what that can be. The generative AI is new. AI is not new for us. I mean, if you've used our products, we have features like content-aware fill and things that you look at it and you say, oh my God, that's magic. And so you know, it's just a different kind of magic. That's my belief. I'm Harshit. I'm a second-year MBA student here. Um, looking back, back at your life, what are the ways that you have found creative inspiration, and how, 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 do they, how do they nourish you today? Well, you know, the reality is you get creative inspiration from so many things. So it's hard for me to look at one, you know, aspect. At Adobe, I'm a big believer in, you know, we hire a lot from uh, college, and it's like, go spend time with them, right? I mean, the ability to, I, I think one of the attributes I hope that people will say about me is I'm intellectually very curious. And if you are intellectually curious, then you're learning something in every aspect of, of what you do. But I, I think for me, a lot of it comes from people. So the inspiration from people is when you sit with a product team and they're talking to you about the stuff that they've been working for. This morning, before coming in here, I was like, okay, there's a product called Adobe Express. I want to sit with that team and you know, I want to really understand what that is. So inspiration comes from them. Um, I have my self-help group, you know, when I took over as CEO, that, that's one other piece of at least learning for me, uh, which is find people with whom you can share what's going on. You know, these jobs become lonely. It doesn't matter what the job is. And, uh, you know, one of your own alum, John Donahoe, I would say he's one of my best friends. And John took over as CEO of eBay, PayPal, when I took over as CEO of uh, Adobe. Brad Smith took over as CEO of Intuit at that time. Um, and so, you know, I have this self-help group where I can go tell them anything that's on my mind and, you know, there's no BS 
And so that's inspiration, right? Because you hear about what they're doing. But most of all, it's my family. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, that's where you get, you know, incredible inspiration. And so, uh, but there's, I'm an optimist by nature. And if you look at every one of these, even if something doesn't go well, you know, I always go back and look at it and say, did I learn something? And if I can learn something from it, but you get inspiration from so many, and I, thank God, I mean, I, again, I know you didn't ask this question. I'm a big believer in work at work, okay? Adobe has never taken attendance. We'll never take attendance. We trust people, but I don't know how you build culture. I don't know how you grow somebody's career if they're completely remote or hybrid. And so, I, you know, thank God that we're, you know, mostly behind all of this and we are back at work and I get inspiration from people. Uh, that, that's what I get inspiration from. I think we might have one more question. Hi, uh, my name is Tanmay, and I'm a student in the Graduate School of Engineering. Um, I also had a question about generative AI and uh, the Firefly suite of products. So uh, there's a lot of questions about you know, the copyright with these uh, algorithms and who owns it. Uh, on the input, on the output, do the artists own it? Uh, you know, on the training data, who owns that? And uh, there's a few lawsuits also going on with other companies. Yep. So as a business leader, you know, uh, as these products exist, you know, out there in the world right now, but there is also this uncertainty on we haven't decided a lot of uh, issues about the ethics with these products yet. Mm -hmm. So as we, as Adobe continues to deploy uh, these models, how do you deal with these issues? I, it is one of the, if, if you actually think about where I've spent my time in this area, it's also, it's probably 80% of time on the technology and sitting with the engineers, again, that inspiration, learning all about, you know, training models and inference models and sampling and, uh, you know, uh, image to text stuff. It's been fascinating in the technology. I've also spent as much time, you know, really trying to understand derivative work and transformative work and the legal implications. We do have a paper, so uh, if you're interested, you can read about AI ethics and what Adobe thinks about AI ethics and biases and all of that. But, and, and so, you know, I think successful businesses, you have to navigate all, all these aspects. You have to navigate the technology. Your technology better be good if you're a product company. You have to have a monetization model. That's what I learned at Pictra. You didn't have a monetization model at, at that point. And you have to engage with your community. Uh, but the lessons that I also learned from the community, in fact, when we moved to the cloud, I'll give you that example. When we moved to the cloud, Adobe was the first company that said, we're going to move to the cloud, boxes, we're not going to do it. We got ranked as one of the most uh, green companies in the world because we ship box. We stopped shipping boxes. You know, I was, we were the number two company, the greenest company in the world. And I'm like, we don't even do any manufacturing. How come we're the you know, greenest company? PDF, I know, is green because we you know, help you uh, not uh, you know, uh, kill trees. But you, know, you, look at, you look at all of that legal stuff and that community, the community didn't want us to move to the cloud. The community actually said that this is a way that you know, Adobe is trying to do it. They had a petition. You know, there's this petition.org or whatever that is, and there was a petition. I always say there was a petition to eliminate senior management, and then I clarify it was a petition to fire as the CEO. So I, <laughs> luckily I survived. Uh, but engaging with the community on that and recognizing that even when they are people who are opposed to it, go really deeply understand what their issues are. And are there issues fear? Are there issues well-intentioned? If they're well-intentioned, then you've got to go address it. If there are issues of fear, there's not much you can do about some of that stuff. So specifically on Firefly, first, uh, you know, our model is completely trained. We didn't train it on Behance data, even though Behance is an Adobe site. We did not do that. And so uh, you know, we've identified what our model is. You've got to be transparent uh, with your customers on that. You've got to understand you know, where the law is going to head. And you're right, there's some uncertain part of it. But you have to have your North Star as a company and be clear about which lines you're not going to cross. And if you can do that, and if you can communicate that to your customers, things work out. If you're, un if you're ambiguous about that, you know, then I think bad things happen in companies. And so our, our job is to assert where we are going and then help navigate it. And it's an uncertain time, but you know, frankly, in the uncertain times, uh, good companies should get stronger and you know that's where opportunity is right
for us. And I think we're coming at it from the absolutely right intentions. So uh, I'm confident about what we're going to do. Thank you, Shantanu. My name is Srinivas. I'm from Stanford LEAD program. My question to you is, I'm just borrowing a concept I read long ago from a book called The Zen and Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Robert Persig. Robert Persig. We all grew up reading that in <laughs> <Yeah>. India. <laughs> so there's this uh, classical versus romantic. Classical being the engineering, the number crunching. The romantic being somebody who appreciates creativity, art, and so on and so forth. You, with Adobe, are in a unique situation where you encounter these two on a day-to-day basis. So how, does, how do you uh, exert your creative juices to come? I mean, how do you appreciate the creativity or the art part of Adobe? You know, I'm a big believer. Everybody talks about STEM. I'm all about STEAM. I mean, think about it. The world without arts would be an incredibly boring place. And so, you know, I, I, it's how I run the company. I, you have to get inspired, right? And... Whenever we have business reviews, uh, since this is the last question, whenever we have business reviews, I always say, give me the narrative and give me the data. So actually, I have the best job in the world where, you know, if somebody comes in and all they are doing is giving me data after data after data, the, you know, what you talked about in terms of the data, then you lose that essence or the zen of, you know, I, in fact, I use that expression all the time in the company. What's the zen of what you're trying to do? You know, inspired by that book. Um, but if people don't have that narrative of why this is going to be different, better, et cetera, then something's missing. And so I, I actually am maybe uh, you know, trying to blend the two. And so the way I like to manage is, tell me the zen of what we are trying to do. And I think that's at the end of the day how you, know, you make things different. Mm -hmm. But make sure you have the right metrics or data because that's what we're all expected to do to understand if you're making progress. Because otherwise it's far too easy. And so... I think that book inspired me to actually try and find a, a happy balance uh, between both of them. Before we close, Shantanu, it's a view from the top tradition to okay. end with a, a rapid fire round. Uh, so okay. I'll ask a series of quick questions and you can respond with the first couple of things that come to mind. Okay. Uh, first one, two words your wife would use to describe you. <laughs> two words. Family man. Two words your kids may use to describe you. <laughs> These are tough. I hadn't heard this. Okay. Uh, <laughs> competitive golfer. <laughs> Two words you would use to describe yourself. Blessed individual. And last but not least, two words that Billie Eilish may use to describe you. <laughs> Who is this guy? <laughs> Shantanu, it's been an honor. Thank you so much for sharing your time. Thank you. You've been listening to View from the Top, the podcast, a production of Stanford Graduate School of Business. This interview was conducted by me, Sankalp Banerjee, of the MBA class of 2023. Lily Sloan composed our theme music, and Michael Riley and Jenny Luna produce this episode. You can find more episodes of this podcast at our website, gsp.stanford.edu, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Stanford GSP.